Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. everyone and welcome to Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross and I'm here with my co-host Tamara Thorne. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. You can learn more about your hosts by visiting our websites at tamarathorne.com and alistaircross.com. Or you can visit our uh, Haunted Nights Live page on Facebook or our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our handle is at thorncross. Uh, First, we'd like to give a very special thanks to W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Uh, Tonight, we're talking to Michael Brent Collings, who is a number one internationally best-selling novelist and screenwriter, and one of Amazon's most popular horror writers. His bestsellers include Twisted, The Colony Saga, Strangers, Darkbound, Apparition, The Haunted, The Loon, and the YA fantasy series, The Billy Saga. Uh, Before we introduce him, here's Tamara with an excerpt from his book, Whispers. All right. This is fun. It was small. It was dirty. There was barely enough room for the boy to crawl, and there was no way at all he could hope to stand. That was right, he knew. Though young, though still a boy in the eyes of the world, he'd seen enough in his life to know this. He was where he should be. He was on his knees, and that was the way Daddy wanted him. On hands and knees, begging and crying, pantaloons tearing, vest and jacket fast becoming shreds of cloth. And he was not the only thing that crawled down here. Many-legged creatures writhed over the boy's hands, into his clothes, through his hair. He could feel them touch his skin and bite his flesh. Spiders, perhaps the long centipedes that he had seen under his home. The bites burned. Blood dripped from the boy's nose and mouth, from a cut beside his blue-blue eyes. From too many places to count or contemplate, it washed, it splashed on his hands, rolled in thin rivulets to the earthy soil below his palms. The boy crawled forward didn't know where he was going, didn't care, just hoped, hoped he could crawl fast enough, far enough to get away. He whispered as he crawled, words that no one could hear but him, words that the earth sopped up as quickly and completely as his blood. He wanted to fall, his sides hurt where the kicks had rained down, his face hurt where his fists had fallen, again, 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 and then he somehow got away, and he ran, ran blindly, and found himself in this dark place, this place where he crawled and bled and whispered. Light seeped into the crawl space from behind him. He hoped that didn't mean he could be followed. Hoped that didn't mean there was a hole large enough for a man, a man inflamed by desire, enraged by injury. The boy whispered, crawled, bled, blood, tears, sweat. The dirt drank it all in. And then the whispers, nearly silent, turned to a scream as the wood above the boy's head collapsed. Splinters bit at his cheeks. More blood rained. A hand punched into view, bloody from slamming through the floor that was the ceiling off the boy's short-lived hideaway. The hand was one the boy knew well, from the thick black hairs on the knuckles to the well-bitten fingernails, to the stubs where two fingers had been lost in a mill accident long ago. The three remaining fingers grabbed the boy by his thick blonde hair. They yanked upward. The boy screamed. His head hit the remains of the wood planking that topped the crawl space. It didn't fit through the small hole that the fist had created. It didn't matter. His head went through anyway. The boy whispered a few last words. Then the three-fingered hand gave a final pull. The boy seemed to fall up as the earth had forgotten how to hold him onto him. He tumbled through the wood out of the crawl space into waiting arms. The boy screamed again, a scream of terror that became pain, a scream of pain that became rage, a scream of rage that returned to pain once again. And then at last, the screams ended. No more whispers, no more shrieks. But the blood still flowed, and the soil drank its fill. Very nice. That is uh, very evocative. And and the first question I would like to ask you, Michael Brent, about that is, um, child horror this is something that's a really incredibly 
uh, touchy subject. Um, we don't even dare go there. <laughs> this, how do people react? To, yeah, yeah. How do people react to this? Well, okay. Well, first of all, I have to clarify. That's actually from my book, Twisted, um, and the chapter is called Whispers. Um, ah. And the only reason I the only reason I clarify is because I know every one of your audience is out clicking right now, going, "Where's this book?" Um, <laughs> from Twisted. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, but you're right. Child horror is something that um, is very touchy and it's very difficult because children are they are so precious and they are so important to us. And at the same time, if you think about it, um, so many movies have children as sort of uh, villains or vessels of evil because they represent our mortality. They represent kind of our failures because, you know, if we're good people, if we're good parents, if we're good mentors, we hope that the children will surpass us. But as soon as they surpass us, we no longer really have a, a reason to live. Um, and so there's right. this kind of interesting dichotomy whenever you're dealing with a child in a, in a, in a piece of horror literature. So um, that in itself makes them very uh, tough to deal with in certain ways and a lot of fun in others. But whenever you're dealing with hurting um, a child, you do have to walk a very careful line. Um, the line that I've drawn for myself is, is that there are bad things that happen to kids um, in the world and I treat with some of them. The entire book, Twisted, is actually a book about uh, child abuse. And so to touch on that subject, to, to treat with it, I have to have subjects who are being abused. And I try and respect it. And I think um, my philosophy with writing horror in general is that there's a difference between examining evil and celebrating it. There's a difference between looking into the darkness so that we can understand how to how to vanquish it, how to get beyond it, and running into it and holding it as tight as we can and going, oh, yeah, baby, I'm home, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and that actually, so I, I that's, that's something we read. Uh, yeah, we read an article that where you talked about the morality of horror. And I'm actually uh -huh. really interested in that. Um, what are what are some of your views on that? Like, well, I, like I, we, yeah, we agree, but explain, explain that I liked the way that you worded it. Well, I think um, my, my point of view, people often ask, um, how come I write horror? I'm a very religious person, so I go to church and, you know, I've got four beautiful children and I love my wife. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm like the most Norman Rockwell-y kind of person you could possibly find. Yeah. Um, and so people come up, you know, and they, and they're like, you write books. And I say, yes. And they say, so like Harry Potter. And my answer is, you know, yes, absolutely. If Harry goes insane and murders Hermione and Ron catches <laughs> fire, you know, and those sorts of things. Um, and they, they want to know why a nice person who's goes to church and does all these sort of things can, can write such awful, awful subjects. And, and the reason <laughs> is because I find horror to be an incredibly moral genre that talks about big issues. If you have a girl, uh, just as a very easy example, if you have a girl who is possessed of the devil, like in The Exorcist, um, who comes in to save her but a man of God? And you're all of a sudden, you're not just talking about, you know, a scary girl who's puking pea soup. You're talking about good versus evil. And you're talking about what do we do to get ourselves out of situations where we've made bad choices. And you're talking about issues that people really want to know about. You know, are there things beyond this life? Do they impact us in this life? You know, are, are the choices we make going to matter after death? You know, is death the end? And, and like it or not, most people in the world have a belief system that encompasses more than just birth to the last breath. And so horror gets to talk about those things. Um, right. If you are dealing with science fiction, you can talk about aliens, but you cannot talk about angels. And if you're right. talking about literary fiction, you can talk about adultery and you can, you know, wax effulgent about the dew on the tea leaf, you know? <laughs> um, right, right. You can't talk, you know, you can't have a pastor come in and give a real sincere speech about the devil and about good and evil and God, but you can do all that stuff in horror. 
And I think it's fascinating. And I especially think it's fascinating given the fact that most people who don't like horror, they go, oh, it's just so icky and people are so yucky in it. And, and, and if you look at the best horror, there are bad things that happen. And then there are marvels that occur. You know, there's literally there's right. grace moments from God that lift people beyond it. And you're going, how can anyone read this and not think it is an uplifting piece of, of literature? Right, right, exactly. And see, and we, we've talked about that, and we, we actually totally agree. You can't bring, uh, you know, good and evil or, or God or any kind of any, you know, you know spiritual belief into, yeah. uh, you know, uh, romance, for example, or, you know, there's right. just really no place for it. There's really no place for it. But in horror, you get to really get to a place where you answer uh, the deeper questions of life. And that's, that's, that's one thing that I've always believed in and still believe. And I loved the way that you said that, like I said, I read an interview uh, earlier today where you talked about that and, and that is, you, you worded it perfect. And I just wanted to hear you say that to our audience, because yeah. I, I think that that's, that's a fantastic view and it's, and it's true. Um, <laughs> the other, the other uh, thing woo-hoo. that I noticed, yeah, exactly. The other thing I noticed too that I, that I have to ask about is um, this is very poetic. The way that it's written, uh, your your style seems uh, very poetic. Do you write any poetry? You know, I don't tend to um, because I have too much respect for poetry. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you could. But my, my dad, my dad was a. Um, was a creative writing professor for a, a, a major university, and he was the poet in residence there. So I I got a lot of it through osmosis. And he's I mean he's so talented. And he's he's published something like three thousand poems. So you don't grow up in an environment like that without reading a couple. And right. um, and there is definitely an intended lyricism to some of the passages. Um, that's another thing that I think is really funny that people go. Oh well, it's, uh, horror is just sort of this smutty, drecky stuff that you read. You know, you kind of like you put it inside a better book, like you're reading War and Peace, and inside is a Stephen King book. Even though really a Stephen <laughs> King book, there's no way you could fit it in War and Peace. Right, it's right. Stephen King book bigger. <laughs> um, but but if that were true, you know, like but you look at Stephen King and Dean Coon, Some of his later books are are almost. Ex- explicitly about the language and not even about the plot anymore. And, um, yeah. and some of the most beautiful passages in modern literature are in horror. And, and it's, they have this beautiful um, pacing to them. And I think that we respond to that just like we respond to music uh, on the radio. That what we respond to isn't just the notes. It's the spaces between the notes. It's the breaks. It's the changes. And horror does that in a story level, I mean, it's not, you know, like, it's it's not just a, a romance where does he love me? Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. It's It's got a huge variation of emotion because you've got laughter to blow off steam. You've got crying when people die. You've got terror. You've got, I mean, horror runs the entire gamut of human emotions when it's done well. And so there is an inherent poetry to it when it's done properly. Right. You, you remind me of uh, I, I tease on Ray Bradbury, and I always, whether it's science fiction or anything, he always has that feel of horror. But even as a child, yes. I thought that his prose was the best poetry of all. Yes, and Bradbury's a master, and 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 I think too part of it is that poetry. One of the things that it does um, very well, as a rule, um, is that it condenses ideas into phrases and phrases into words, you know, until the point you get a haiku and you've got, you've got um, 17, uh, 17 syllables and an entire world encapsulated. And horror does tend to do that as well, because when you, when you have a scene where the two main characters are sitting around talking, it's nice and languid. And then all of a sudden you're in a chase and what's been a slow drawn out characterization moment suddenly becomes fragmented very short sentences, I mean, that would make Hemingway seem like Dickens because they're so quick and so incisive because that's, <laughs> right. the only way you, that's the only way you can sort of convey the rapidity of movement. I mean, if an axe murderer is chasing you 
you don't write. And lo, thus he swung the axe. He lifted it high and before he cleaved, you know, you you would write something, you would write, he swung the axe, cut, left, swish, you know, and and, and all of a sudden you've got single word sentences. um, And and that's very poetic because you're you're capturing moods as much as you're capturing imagery. Right. That's very true. Well said. Um, I want to go back a minute to the the uh, movies The Exorcist and Good and Evil and Children, just for a second. Uh, not children sure. necessarily, but I, I love asking this of people. If if you send a say you have little Reagan and she's you know basically Christian even if she hasn't been in it, but she's heard it all her life, and you bring a priest uh-huh. in, that's one thing. What if little Reagan is Buddhist or atheist or something, strongly so? What happens when you bring a priest in? Well, do you feel like it would still work or not? Oh, that's a good question. I think, you know, me personally, I think that it's in those sorts of stories, you have a very interesting choice to make. And the choice is, do you determine that one religion is true or... You determine that the faith is what matters and the trappings are unimportant. And either way, you can have a really interesting story choice because let's say Regan is Buddhist and the and the priest comes in and he saves her. Well, you know, if you if you're smart at that point, that's not the end of the story. That's the midpoint because now mm-hmm. you've got to find out that Regan that the monster really hasn't gone. It's just faded into the background because this is part of what it does is it destroys people's faith, you know? And so it let the priest throw her out kind of thing so that Regan would be destroyed body and soul. Um, And so you can do all sorts of wonderful things with that. Um, But I think that if you're going to mix those sorts of religions, it does take a very clear idea and you have to be willing to piss some people off because, um, you know, your Catholics are going to be like, what is what is one of these Buddhist people doing here? And the Buddhist, well, the Buddhist <laughs> people don't get that upset. So they, you know, they're going to sit there and go, ah, oh, Catholics, interesting. Um, you know, but, but you're going to irritate people. And also, I think a large reason that you, that you tend to have, like Catholics, for instance, is because, mm-hmm. A, they're recognizable. I mean, it's a major religion yeah. that we understand in the West. And B, they have vestments. So it's like, if it's a Lutheran, yeah. you know, like, one of my one of my books, the the main characters were actually Lutheran, and I and 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 I'm and I try to be very respectful of religions and other religions. And so mm-hmm. I went and talked to a Lutheran minister, and I was and one of the questions I asked was, "Do you guys you know believe in possession? Yes. Do you do exorcisms? Eh, kind of. And it was like we say prayers, and that's less exciting than having somebody chuck holy water at you. You know, right, right, <laughs> Way less. yeah. An hour and a half of people praying on TV. That's. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know the the Catholics have cooler stuff for a movie, <laughs> right? Exactly. Exciting. Exactly. I have to ask you. I'm, I have to. Yeah, I have to ask you. I'm I'm curious about this. You you're you're religious and you write horror, and yeah, I don't want to harp on it too much, but but I find that very interesting. Um, I have to ask. Do you get? Do you feel like you get any judgment from your um? congregation or your your family your neighbors do, do are there people no. who just don't understand no i i occasionally i get somebody who looks at me like they just don't get it and then i explain my theory of of horror and also you know the way i put it is this that the most horrifying story i have ever read in my life um and i just read it the other day actually involves this guy who goes into a garden and he bleeds out of his face and then his friends betray him and nail him on a cross. And that's, a, I mean, that's a horrifying story. Right, but the point right. of the horror, if if you ended it there, it would be a bad, depressing, evil story. But the point of it is that afterwards he rises up from the dead and he overcomes sin. And so if you use that horror correctly, you have an uplifting story. And that's how I try and use my horror. Not to say that everybody wins in the end of my books, because some of my books, everybody loses. um, Because I'm trying to tell a a story about bad choices and about people that don't deserve to win. But even that is is sort of cast in a moral framework. And when I talk to them about that, they kind of get it. They go, oh, cool. And if they still don't, I go, plus the bishop loves my books, and he plays hooky from work, (laughs) and we go watch horror movies. (laughs) 
So at that point. Nice. nice. <laughs> so you mentioned your father. Um, so he writes horror as well? Yeah, yeah let's talk he, about um, dad. Big deal. He is a stud. He is awesome. He, um, I, I love him unabashedly. He's one of my heroes. He actually, if any of your readers have ever read Stephen King books in their public high school, it is because, by and large, uh, because of my father. My dad was a professor, and he was one of the first uh, people in academia who took Stephen King and said, he's not pulp, this is literature. And he wrote the first book-length scholarly critiques of Stephen King, and he was actually the world uh-huh. expert on Stephen King for wow. about 20 years. So, like, wow. we would come home, and there'd be these random packages that were return address Stephen King, Banger Maine, about oh, the right wow. size for a human head. It was a little weird. Um, <laughs> and then you became a horror writer. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, how could I? Well, you know what I tell people is I went to bed every night with either typing or screaming in the next room because my dad would either be writing a book about Stephen King or watching a Stephen King movie while he was writing a book about Stephen King. So I was kind of doomed. Um, cool. And in addition, my father's a very talented horror writer as well. So... Um, so I, yeah, I definitely by both by both leanings and upbringing, I had very little choice in how I was going to turn out. <laughs> is, is he one of the reasons you turned to writing horror? Well, you know, I'm I'm sure it is because anytime you're around stuff, uh, mm-hmm. you're gonna understand it. So I I actually write all sorts of things. I write science fiction. I write thrillers. I write fantasy. Um, I write middle grade. I write young adult. But I I tend to write one of those. And then I'll come back to horror. And then I'll write one of those and yeah. I'll come back to horror. Because horror is a home base. It's something I understand. Mm-hmm. It's something I enjoy. Um, and again, I get to tell these awesome, not like way awesome radical dude, but like capital A awesome stories about important things. So um, when I'm writing a, a, a fantasy story, I wrote a fantasy series called Billy Messenger of Powers. Um, because my wife walked in one day, and my wife is way hot. She's super nice. She's super smart. She's totally out of my league. And um, and she comes in and says, honey, I love your books, but if you don't write something that I can read without turning on all the lights and putting the cops on speed dial, I will divorce you. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I write this fantasy series for her, and it's great fun, but it doesn't have the depth of the stories that I tell when I'm scaring people. Nice. Yeah. So do you, you, um, uh, you, I'm trying to think of the way to word it. You, you do, no, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think of the way to word it. It sounds like you, you do, um, My underwear is white if that's what you're going to (laughs) ask. You do, you do horror with, with, with like high, high moral and, I think that's really cool. I think because I think you're right. There's slasher and then there's horror, and I I love the fact that you've uh, you see the difference and that you've gone you know that direction because I don't think that you know I could and I don't think you could either, Tamara. Right? Just straight slasher, you know. Yeah. No. So, yeah. No. That's, well, and that's but but I do have to put an addendum. Like I, I do have very violent books. One of my books called Darkbound. Um, when I sell it. Personally, like when I go to a convention and I'm selling books, um, I hand it over and it's got an explicit advisory kind of note. I say, hey, this one's violent. And they go, well, it's horror. And I say, no, it's it's violent. You know, like there's a whole chapter of a guy being pulled apart. Um, but there's a reason for it. And, and there's a difference between um, teenagers running off to bang in the woods and an active guy <laughs> chopping them to pieces during coitus um, and <laughs> something happening, you know, well, there is, you know, and, and, and I don't, I don't understand that because I've never been a nubile teen who ran into the woods to bang, first of all, <laughs> and, and second of all, I never had an axe murderer after me, but I do understand that bad things happen, and I mean, by bad things, I mean, there are truly horrific things out there, and I've seen some of them, and so um, some some things are of such gravity, you can't just say, you know, if somebody dies in a car accident, you can maybe say, and he died in a car accident, and get away with it. But there are some things that are of such gravity that if you treat them that way with just sort of a throw-off line, 
it will neither have the impact it needs to have to affect the audience, nor will it achieve the dramatic effect it deserves given the subject matter. So, for instance, um, uh, one of my books is about um, parents who kill their children, and it's explicitly about that, which I, when, as I was researching, I found out there's scientific papers about parents who kill their children, and I was appalled by that because, A, what kind of scientist would want to research that? And B, <laughs> oh, my gosh, there's enough of it that scientists can research that. I know, right? <laughs> and, you know, it was hor- I was so horrified. Um, but as I researched it, I realized, like, there's going to be some violence in this book, and I have to be very careful with it, but I can't be nice about it because it's a horrible horrible thing and yeah. I don't want people coming away thinking it's a Saturday morning cartoon. Right, right. Um, very quickly, very quickly, for those of uh, for those who are just joining us, we are talking to Michael Brent Collings. Uh, he is a number one internationally best-selling novelist and screenwriter and one of Amazon's most popular horror writers. His bestsellers include Twisted, The Colony Saga, Strangers, Darkbound, Apparition, The Haunted, The Loon, and the YA fantasy series, The Billy Saga. And the excerpt that you heard earlier was from his novel, Twisted. Um, Also, uh, I have to say that uh, we uh, have some exciting guests coming up. Uh, Next week, we have Laurel K. Hamilton, author of the Anita Blake series, uh, Vampire series. Um, coming up also, we have F. Paul Wilson, Jonathan Mayberry, Christopher Moore, Charlene Harris, uh, all very good, exciting stuff. Um, on a personal note, we are working on the eighth and final installment of The Ghost of Ravencrest, uh, which should be available in a few weeks. And my solo novel, The Crimson Corset, went off to edits today, and that should be out um, later this summer. I'm thinking July is probably about when it'll be ready. Um, speaking of writing, and that's what we speak about here, uh, I, I want to veer <laughs> off just a little bit because before the show, we were talking about, uh, you know, most people don't just decide, oh, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. Most people go and do other things and, and kind of find their way to writing. And, uh, Michael Brent, your, your story is really interesting because before you were a writer, okay, now you're, uh, an Amazon's most, you know, popular horror writer, you know, number one bestseller. That's, that's a big deal. And congratulations on that. But before you did that, you, you were a lawyer, a lawyer. How did you, <laughs> how did you, you go? With the proper amount of scorn. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, it's, it's interesting. It's curious because you would think, you know, lawyer it seems to be just, you know, socially speaking, such a, such a coveted, you know, uh, vocation, you know, whereas writer, eh, not so much. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather be a writer than a lawyer, you know. <laughs> yeah, so we don't have to wear suits. Exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting to me. So let's talk a little bit about how you went. Well, first of all, how did you become a lawyer and, and what changed and, and what led you to writing? Well, oh, geez, that's a, well, first of all, if, 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 Society covets being a lawyer. That's just a sad commentary on society. That's that's my first statement. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I became a lawyer because I did not want to be that that sort of stereotypical forty year old artist guy who's living in his parents' basement and bringing over women <laughs> and being like, "Any day, baby, I'm gonna make it big." P.S. You pay for dinner tonight. You know, I I didn't want to be that guy. Um. So I went to law school, you know, I, I, I went to college and, and if, if anybody who's thinking of being a writer out there, you know, going to college to get an M, an MFA or, you know, some sort of writing related degree, that's fine. If your teacher has some sort of a contact at a publishing house or at a production company, but other than that, they're kind of a waste of time. So I didn't want to do right. that. So I, I, um, I went to law school and I went to a very good law school. I became a lawyer. And my poor wife got totally baited and switched because we got married my third year of law school. And, you know, she's this amazing girl. And we're, we're telling each other about ourselves. And I said, yeah, I like to write. And, and then we got married pretty quickly. And, and you're very into each other for the first couple of years. 
So two years later, I say, remember that writing thing? That was more than a like. That was more of an obsessive-compulsive <laughs> disorder. Um, and, and so... So I would go to work at six in the morning and I'd get back at six-ish at night and, and I'd mess around with my family um, until 10 or 11 and then I'd work until two in the morning and I did that for almost a decade. Um, I'd write until two in the morning and I would be sending out screenplays and I'd be sending out books and I'd, I'd be just working as hard as I could at two jobs. And eventually I sold some screenplays and I started making money writing books and at the same time, um, just to show you how ironic life can be, um, the managing partner of my law firm, I was a partner at the time, um, but the managing partner called me in and said, hey, this isn't working out. Um, and among the reasons they gave was, we don't like you spending your extra time this way. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently there's something apparently there's something worse in the universe than being a lawyer. Uh, so, <laughs> so. Nice. Um, so, so I literally failed at my fallback job, and um, and then mm -hmm. somehow, you know, stumbled my way into success at my at my my primary desire job. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So, when you were a little kid, you probably didn't hope to be a lawyer. Did you want to no, write? Was... Did you write? Yes, I. You know, I I wanted to be a writer from very young. I I started reading and writing as. By the time I was four, I was reading and writing, um, and I did it all through high school. And I, you know, I was kind of a nerdy kid, and I was very small for my age, and and I was I was outspoken with a big vocabulary, which meant I was a good punching bag. And so <laughs> I didn't I didn't know how to make friends for a long time, but I knew if I wrote these stories, I could make people laugh, or I could make people mm -hmm. scared, and that was kind of a cool feeling to be able to adjust people's emotions and through that make them have an experience that they're like, oh, Michael Brent's kind of cool. He writes these stories. And so it became an identifier for me. Um, and later on, eventually I started to think, maybe I want to do this for a living. But, but again, I'm a coward and I didn't ever want to be that guy living in a cardboard box or in my parents' basement. I wanted to be somebody who could take care of a family. I, I did know from way before I wanted to be a writer, I knew I wanted to have a family and I wanted to have kids. And that was always the most important thing for me. So I set my life up, I hoped, in a way that would provide for that. And then I worked as a writer as a second job, basically. Uh, and so wow. that second job overshadowed the first job. <laughs> right, right. So now do you what are what are some of your thoughts on you know traditional versus self publishing? You've you've managed to make a living doing this, and you know that's that's awesome, and and it's it seems to be happening more and more these days. Um, d does that have anything to do with the way the industry is right now? Well, for me personally, um, it wasn't a choice at first. I mean, I submitted to every literally every traditional publisher in the United States. And if you had set me on fire, rolled me into the office of a traditional publisher and offered them a gold brick, if they would put me out by peeing on me, they would not have done it. Um, <laughs> it was just, you know, I just, I just didn't have any luck that way. And, um, and I, you know, for your listeners, I accumulated before I started making any money at all, I accumulated over 10,000 rejection letters for my uh, yeah. screenplays and my books. And that's not wow. an exaggeration. That's an actual numerical fact. Um, how long and did so that it takes take? a lot of, uh, that took how almost long 15, did it take? Years. 15, 15 years. 15 years. Wow. That's, that's yeah. still not as much as I expect to hear. That's amazing. Oh, well, I, yeah, I was, I was constantly working at it. And then, you know, so I wrote this book uh, called Run and, Again, the publishers didn't want it, and so I put it on a shelf. And then a friend of mine kind of said, hey, there's this Kindle thing. And I and I thought, eh, you know, I can't hurt anything any worse than it just sitting on my shelf. So I put it on the on Amazon. And the first month, it met with overwhelming success. I sold literally six copies, all of which I think my mom bought. Yeah, so, you know. Month. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was fine. I, you know, again, I wasn't going in like, I'm going to make a billion dollars. I just put it up 
But six months right. or about four months, four months later, a friend emailed and said, "Hey, Amazon keeps emailing me and telling me to buy your book," which I thought was weird. And I went on the uh-huh. site and I found out it was doing it was doing well. And two months after that, it was the number one best-selling horror science fiction title, their number two thriller title, and their top one of their top hundred products, not just books but blogs and and wow. little games and doodads and all that stuff. Right. So. Um, at that point, I realized, like, hey, maybe I shouldn't spend time with traditional publishing because I seem to do okay this way. Um, right. And it was actually a huge disservice because I had no idea what I had done to make this happen. And so, you know, I, I sold all these thousands and thousands of books, and I thought, I am awesome. I am a bestseller. And the next book <laughs> sold, like, you know, again, six copies because I <laughs> didn't know what I'd done. <laughs> Oh. So um, it took it took about ten books. It took publishing about ten books before I started seeing regular money, and it took about fifteen before it was regular good money. Um, right. So right. you know, for me, this is what works. But no matter what, I I always tell people that the there are three P's to success in art in any artistic field, and that's people, product, and pigheadedness. You you get to know people who will either um, push your books or buy your books. You crank out as many books as you can to make those people happy, and you accumulate an ability to ignore all the stupid, bad, evil crap that happens to you along the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's 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 what's awesome. What's the worst thing that's happened to you? What was that? Happened to you? What's the worst thing that's happened to you? Gee, you know. Whatever happened most recently, I'm a person of the present. Um, <laughs> You've forgotten. You've taken your own advice. Have you, have you had any? Have, I, you you know, ever, it, have you had any horrible experiences, like like the the, you know, in in writing? What what's the worst? <laughs> what's the ugliest? I, I, I did have. Well, I had one person who started. Um, and this is early on, so this mattered. Like, if I get a negative vote on one of my books, it matters a lot less now because, you know, I have thousands of, of reviews, and so one is going to get a little bit less impact. But when I was first starting out, <laughs> one of my books was doing pretty well, and someone took an apparent disliking to me um, and started downvoting or, you know, down uh, writing bad reviews of all my books and then claiming all the yeah. other reviews were soft puppets, were people that were really me. And uh, and it was really stressful because I was going like, this yeah. person is damaging my credibility as a writer at a point where I have no credibility as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So that you know, and I and and it was really hard because you're you shouldn't engage with that sort of thing. It's, but at the same time, mm-hmm. what do you do? Yeah. You let them sit there and and ruin the little bit of reputation you have. So it's a it's a lose lose sort of a proposition and. Um, and eventually, through some detective work, I realized it was my suspicion was that it was another person who was on some of the same lists as I was as far as the, you know, the bestseller list. And, and their book was fading out and mine was rising up. And it was somebody who was just upset. Um, right. And that, that's actually one of the most upsetting things to see is, is when authors go after each other oh. or when authors go after their readers. You know, like you see a reader who's, who leaves a scathing review, and then an author gets all up in their face, like, how dare you do this? This is my life. This is my livelihood. And, and I kind of want to sit there and go, you know what? You're playing in the big boy pool now. You're going to get splashed. Suck it up yeah. and get used to it. Yeah, you right. can't answer yeah, that kind you know of what? thing. What did you ultimately exactly. do? Uh, what, yeah, what happened? Who was it? I mean, was it another writer? You know what I um, – yeah, I'm pretty sure it was another writer. And what I ultimately did was – I had all of my 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 non sock puppet friends um, go on and just just downvote their reviews, so they were still there, yeah. um, but they got at least pushed a little lower in the rankings. And that That's person smart. sent me lots of nasty emails, and and they actually complained to Amazon. So to this day, I am on like some red flag list with oh. Amazon, and any time there's a problem, I am automatically booted for certain things, and I have to go back to them and be like. Look, I'm legitimate. I make lots of money with you guys. I have thousands of reviews. Remember me? And they go, Oh yeah, that's right. You're not in oh, you know. Oh wow. Yeah, it's probably best. You know what? I I 
we've we don't actually read reviews we've gotten to that point no. um once in a while you happen upon one like on goodreads and if it makes you feel any better we have one that does that too we don't know why she just likes to go and <laughs> i don't know why yeah, but but that's, that's okay it's her, it's her problem yeah <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that's the and that's who's other paranormal uh, although one of our books. Yeah, yeah. This is my favorite. This is my favorite bad one. I read a review recently that said something like, "It was one star," and they said something like, "This is my fifth Michael Brent Collins book, and I've hated all of them. The he's terrible." And I read it and go, "All right, man, keep spending your money. I don't understand what you're doing, but it's great for me." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think it's the same. I have to buy it just to hate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what ours did too and every she, she's doing it to all kinds of writers just any yeah, yeah. competition yeah but and in, in the meantime star, she's spending yeah. money to buy them you know so who cares well, yeah. <laughs> yeah she didn't buy ours yeah. we didn't give it to her and we didn't have it in paper and then yeah, exactly. yeah. so she didn't read it she just downvoted it it's like oh yeah, you poor did. loser we just yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> Um, one thing people I would like so, to talk so, people are wonderful and sad. Yeah, they are. They are. But yeah, for the most part, we just stay away from them. We we don't even read them because whatever. You just yeah. got to do your thing. Um, one yeah, thing we'll I wanted to talk to you about. about exactly. <laughs> one thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned this in in your notes to us in, in in the show notes. So I'm assuming it's 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 okay to ask about. And I apologize if it's not. Um, you, you have a depressive disorder, correct? No, I can't believe you asked. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, okay. okay, as long as, well, I mean, it was in the show notes, so, so I think it's safe, but I'm, yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, you're, you're good. How, okay, okay, all right. Um, how, how do you, how does this affect you, your writing and, and how does it, do you use it? Is it therapeutic for you? Um, I try very hard not to let my writing be therapeutic because like I have a psychiatrist. I've had several psychiatrists and one thing they all have in common is they expect me to pay them. Um, and if my writing becomes therapy, I think it's very unfair that I expect the person who is receiving my therapy to pay me. Um, right. So right. <laughs> I, I try, yeah, you know, I, and, and there are writers that do that. They're like, here is my dirty laundry. Here's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to puke forth my demons and, and unadulterated, unwashed, completely right. unready for the world. And, and I don't think that's fair to expect someone to pay $4.99 or, or 99 cents or whatever to, to deal with your crap. Um, I do take real moments that have touched me um, and been difficult and certainly use that to infuse a touch of reality into my characters at certain points. I think that's fair. Uh -huh. um, yeah, yeah. But I don't want to turn it into, I don't want to turn it into a couch relationship between me and my reader where they're like, oh, great. <laughs> right. Michael Brent re released <laughs> well, another book, have, you know, crap. I have a question. <laughs> I have a question about that too. Yeah. Um, writing uh -huh. puts me in such good mood. No matter what I'm writing, I get there, I'm in the zone, and it's automatically puts me in a good mood no matter what it is. I, um, uh -huh. Does that happen to you? That uh, that's how I took it when uh, Alistair said therapy. Yeah, yeah. I, well, you know what's really good is it, it's something to do. So I think one of the things that depression does is it convinces you you're not you're not worth your the skin you live in. You know, and mm -hmm. and if you look at your day and your day is empty and there's no one in it it's very easy to convince yourself, hey, today's a good day to kill myself. And and I don't say that like uh, lightly because no. I have struggled with suicidal depression. Um, mm -hmm. And luckily, I have a wonderful support group. I have a great family. I have, you know, a religion that gives me some good support um, strategies. So that's never been something I've, I've tried to carry out, but it's been a thought. And one thing that's very helpful is to go, hey, I've got something to do today. And I do have people, even yeah. if my family's away, you know, if I'm on a, on a trip, like right now I'm at a conference, um, even as we speak, I'm doing a keynote address for a, a writer's conference tomorrow. And even uh -huh. if I'm alone and I'm out of my comfort zone, I can pull out my laptop and work on my newest book. And it's something to do, and, uh -huh. it's, and it's fake people, <laughs> but there are people right. in there that yeah. I can commune with. 
And and so that is yeah. very therapeutic. Um, sometimes it's actually, I, I don't always get in a good mood. Um, I remember one time in particular I wrote, I have a book. I won't tell you which one because uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's one of my <laughs> books, there's a character in it who is based on my son. Um, he's the spitting image of my kid. And I realized uh, about halfway through the book I had to kill him. Um, and he was going to die as a hero. I mean, he was literally going to save everybody's life, but he was going to die. And that was one of the worst writing days I've ever had. I came home and I was just, I was worn out. I was exhausted. I felt like crying for the rest of the night because I just killed my son. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and that was really, that was really difficult. But writing gives me something to do. And it does allow me to, what I've told people is, it's not like I write and I feel better, but I do write sometimes about, because of the things I write, which are about people who suffer and then they make it through by grace. And and by grace, I mean, sometimes it's like literally the hand of God, but sometimes their grace comes from within. Sometimes it's their own, their goodness finally makes it out. And so sometimes okay. I can latch onto that and I can't say, well, everything's okay now, but I can say, all right, I feel like crap today, but hopefully if I just, stick it through, tomorrow will be a little better. And that hope is enough to get me laying down in bed and waking up the next morning. You know, and some days that's all you need. You need just an excuse to put your feet on the floor and get up and move. And and I think writing is tremendous for that. Right. Yeah, very nice. Um, I wanted to ask you about your book, Twisted. This this is the one that we read the excerpt from, and I'm very curious about it. I'm... uh, I'm definitely going to get it. It's very, I loved, the, I, I loved, I loved the writing and, and, and I read a little bit about it and I'm, I'm definitely interested. Um, let's talk about that book for a minute. What can you tell us about Twisted? Uh, Twisted is a book about a, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those old Victorian photographs where they photographed dead people. Like, and, and yeah. very often. Yeah. Right about <laughs> them, <I guess. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so those things creep me out desperately, um, and, and I get I get the point, and I and I actually think it's kind of sweet um, if you can put yourself in that mindset. There's closure, yeah. and there's you know there's a, a memento of your lost loved one, but it also like looking at those things gives me the, the screaming uh, creepies. Yeah, um, and and so the story is about a a man in the Victorian period who had an obsession with taking pictures of dead children, so much so that he needed to provide a steady supply of them. Um, oh, wow. If you know what I mean. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. eventually he was found out and killed, uh, lay dead for 200 years until a family moved into his old house and the family has two children who are just the right age to wake up an old ghost. Oh, wow. Uh, and so... It is, it's this ghost that's come to haunt. And, but it's also, um, it's a story on a deeper level about child abuse because this, obviously the ghost hurts these children, um, but the family that's moved in, the father is a child of abuse. His father abused him horribly as a, as a kid. Uh-huh. And he's a very good father. He's the antithesis of what his dad was, but he lives with it every day with the fear, what if I do this to my kids? And so it, it, um, it colors very much colors the entire narrative of the book. Nice, very nice. Now, do most of your books do you do you deal mostly in uh, supernatural elements? Um, uh, it's fifty fifty. Like, I, you know, twisted. Obviously, supernatural. I have a book called The Haunted that's about ghosts. Um, there's a book I did called The Loon, which is about a, a maximum security penitentiary for the criminally insane in the middle of nowhere and it gets hit by a blizzard that knocks all of the communications out and it also frees the inmates but they have nowhere to go which is a problem for the staff um, right and then they find out the right and then they find out the real problem is the monster in the basement so that one's um that one's a lot more it's actually science fiction horror um, and then I have one called Strangers, which is about a family that wakes up and they to find out they have been literally sealed inside their home. The doors have been the doors have been barred. The windows have been shuttered with steel uh, with uh, sheets of steel metal, um, and they can't get out. And there's a killer in there with them who wants to have some alone time. So 
Um, <laughs> I like Supernatural a lot. It's a lot of fun. And again, Supernatural does particularly lend itself to these big questions. Um, but I also mm-hmm. do uh, some reality-based stuff, and I do some science fiction-based horror and things like that. It just kind of depends what is tickling my fancy at the moment. <laughs> Nice. We we actually we and I'm I'm curious about. Can we talk a little bit about your book, uh, The Haunted? Um, that's the one. the The cover of that one really stands out to me. And and we both are big lovers of ghost stories. And uh, Tamara Thorne's, you know, uh, her book Haunted is was one of my favorites before you know we even met. So I'm I'm all into like ghosts and stuff like that. So so what what can you tell us about The Haunted? Um, that is my homage to Shirley Jackson's uh, Haunting nice, Hill House, nice. which, which <laughs> anybody who's, yeah, right, anybody who's even peripherally involved mm-hmm. should read that book. My um, Haunted is Shirley Jackson and Richard Matheson's Hell House. That's why I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. See, that's classy stuff. That's classy stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's about, it's a woman, a pregnant woman and her husband move up to this house that's very isolated and it's in the... It's in a, a nice forest setting, and it's a beautiful home. Um, and the first day, things start going badly for them, and they pro- progress very rapidly um, from badly to horrific. One of the one of the things that that I deal with uh, that I like to do in my books is turn tropes on their heads. So two things that that I often see in haunted house stories are are number one, just move, man, just leave. Um, and so I give them a very compelling reason to stay in this house. And number two is that very often in haunted house stories, the ghosts kind of just stay in the background. I mean, they're very scary imagistically, but they don't really do much. Um, and the ghosts in the haunted, they have knives and they have axes and they are, if they come at you, man, you better run or you're going to get your head cut off. Um, so they are, <laughs> nice. they are much more serious and violent sorts of ghosts. And it has a really good couple of um, fun twists in it that most most of the readers seem to seem to enjoy. <laughs> nice, yeah, it's, it's that it's that whole that whole ghost thing. I, I I love it. We have a lot of fun with that. And yeah, I actually um, we went through and looked through uh, some of your work. And again, I'm really really impressed with with your your way with words. You have you're a word person. I don't know what else to call it, mm-hmm. but you can. You can oh, tell, you. no, yeah, sincerely, it's, you know, there are some people who just have an ear for the sound, and it's, and it's, it's, you know, beautifully done, and, and I went through mm-hmm. uh, some of your work, you know, before the show, and it's just, it's, it's truly, you know, you, you go into just kind of glance, and, you know, you know, get the, you know, basics, yeah. and, and you, yeah, you get the feel for it, and you, you find, I, found myself totally absorbed into this and again i have to go back to the uh the excerpt that we read from twisted it's just it's 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 beautiful and that's just i think one oh, of those things you. that, you're welcome i think that, it's just that, one of those things that's natural born yeah. oh, I read well, you very know, few read that well or so funny yes read. yes yeah. oh thank exactly. you well i do i do think it helps to grow up in a in a, in a house where you've got a Fantastic English professor, creative writer, poet, father. Who <laughs> 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 did you read as a child? Uh, like I read Ray Bradbury and all the science fiction authors till I found Shirley Jackson. Well, who did you read? Oh, I I read everybody that I could reach in my dad's uh, library. He had a library uh, of well over ten thousand books, and he had them set up pretty much age appropriate by by reach. So he said, "Whatever you can grab, you can read." Um, nice. I, I read, I loved Ray Bradbury, The Martian Chronicles. Oh my gosh. And Something Wicked This Way Comes. I still read that oh. periodically. It's just fantastic. I read Dandelion Wine every June. Yes. Yes. Dandelion Wine is a really good one. Oh. Um, Tattooed Man. I mean, anything by Bradbury is really hard to go wrong. Um, I oh, read, yeah. I read the classics. I read, Brand, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein. I read a lot. Um, my dad at one point, because I was reading a lot of kind of like, uh, popular pulpy stuff. You know, like I read a lot of, um, uh, not that it's bad, but I read Piers Anthony and I read Harry Harrison and I read Adam oh, and I read uh, all these people like that. And, and my dad at one point kind of took me out and he said, see this? And he pointed at this bookshelf that was full of leather and he said, you have to read one of these for every one of the 
you know, kind of bestsellers that you read. So I read all the Dickens and I read the Shakespeare and stuff like that. And, nice. and I, and I, and I do mean I read very early. So I was reading that stuff by the time I was nine and 10 and I did not appreciate yeah. it at the time. Right. Um, but I'm very glad I, <laughs> very glad well, I read I think, it now. Yeah. I think that that might be where, you know, this very eloquent, you know, voice comes from maybe, you know, it's in, Ray Bradbury you know, so I'm glad. <laughs> definitely in there. Yeah. Bradbury. Yeah. He's the best teacher. <laughs> yeah. Oh, He's wonderful. Yeah. He really is, and mm-hmm. and you know, and and even the bad ones can teach you stuff, and and um and never being afraid to learn. I'll tell you, is a huge thing for a writer. My my wife and kids, they get dragged to so many places because I'll see an interesting building. I mean, we'll we'll be driving to the store, and I'll see an interesting building, and just pull off on the side of the road and walk up and knock on the door, and be like, "Hey, what's in the building?" And they'll go, yeah. "Are you a terrorist?" You know, and, and I'm sitting there going, "No, I'm a writer." You know. I'm I'm totally not crazy. I'm a writer. And as soon as I say I'm a writer, a surprising number of people open the door and they're like, come on in. It's a missile factory, you know. And, um, yeah. <laughs> it's true. But, you know, that's, that's a large a large part of, of being a good writer, I think, is being is not being afraid to be dumb. Right, right. That's, you know, I, we, yeah. we're almost out of time. We're almost out of time. Um but um, in, in, in closing, I want to say uh, uh, one thing. I, I, I'm going to encourage you to write poetry because I think you have such a great voice for it. And I, really, <laughs> and I, don't, like, I don't like poetry, but if you, ever, if you ever decide to do that, let me know because I think that you yeah. would write excellent poetry. Um, oh, <laughs> I, have one, I have one final question for you. Well, almost final. Um, and this can be about <laughs> writing or not. Um, whatever what are you most proud of my family nice all right uh where can our readers i don't even have to think about that (laughs) nice nice good answer good answer where can where can the readers Um, find you uh they can find me at okay so for those of you who are just listening my first name is actually michael brent um and so if you just Google Michael Brent, you're going to come up with my website and my, and my, you know, my Amazon page and my IMDb page and Barnes and Noble and all that stuff. Um, my website is, is michaelbrentcallings.com. Small note, there is a guy named Michael Space Brent who is an underwear model. So if you Google <laughs> Michael Brent and you come up with this, with this stunning guy who is mostly naked, that's not me. I look like a doctor. <laughs> Uh, nice well we have had a great time tonight uh we've been talking to michael brent collins yes uh and um we wish you happy writing keep in touch um a great show it was fantastic meeting you um love your work uh uh, listeners, you. go check this guy out, Michael Brent Callings. He's am- one of Amazon's most popular horror writers, a number one internationally best-selling author and screenwriter. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us, and thank you, Michael Brent, for being on the show. Until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.